I'm Jonathan Mosen. This is Mosen at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. This week, more comment on Apple accessibility bugs. Is the way that many TV ads speak the price of products misleading? And we discuss a topic near and dear to our heart, audio description with the legendary Joel Snyder. Mosen at Large Podcast. Wonderful to have you back for another edition of the podcast. If this is your first time listening, well, a special welcome to you. We have reached episode 204. This is fun because now we're into area codes in the North American numbering framework. And area code 204 belongs to... See, I don't have the budget for a proper drum roll. Manitoba in Canada. So let's have a big helping of maple syrup. With the podcast to celebrate this, the whole province of Manitoba is covered by area code 204. Good, eh? In the wintertime, it can get pretty cool in that part of Canada when you are out and about. Thank you to everybody who tuned in for the Beatles Revolver special. I knew that if the normal pattern was going to be followed, and it turned out that it was, that the Revolver remix would drop at 1am New Zealand time, and I was up to see it happen, and I immediately delved into the Revolver remixes and the outtakes, and we went live on Mushroom FM four hours later. A great audience, comprising a significant number of Beatles geeks, which is always a challenging audience to cater to, but we had a great time listening to not just the remixes, but also some of the outtakes and getting a feel for the way that these Beatles songs evolved. Next week, I am doing another musical special. It's completely different. As you may recall, if you've been listening for a while, my daughter Nicola, Bonnie and I went to the ABBA Museum in Stockholm in Sweden with my trusty Zoom F3 digital recorder clipped to my belt. And the ABBA Museum makes it really clear, we love it if you take photos, take all the photos that you want. And so I emailed the ABBA Museum and I said, that's groovy. Groovy it is about the pictures, but what about audio? And I explained that I do a podcast because initially I thought we would do this on Mosin at Large. And they contacted me and they said, you would have to contact Universal Music. We don't have a problem in principle, but you'd have to check with Universal Music who hold the rights to ABBA stuff about whether you can use it on a podcast, because you cannot use full songs from commercial music on a podcast as a rule. And then I thought, wow, we're licensed on Mushroom FM, so anything good I capture, I can just broadcast there and not be in any breach of any license. And it turned out I got some great audio from the audio guide. It's very pristine. It is. It's pristine. So what I've done has created a three-hour documentary called Mosin at the Museum. Now, I want to set expectations about this. If you are a major ABBA geek, you are not going to learn anything new. I'm mindful of the fact that ABBA was not as big in the United States, say, and perhaps all of North America, as they were pretty much everywhere else. I mean, Australia and New Zealand were ABBA mad. Many parts of the world were. But There are people in the US who know a few ABBA songs, but perhaps didn't get the whole ABBA phenomenon. So what we have with the Mosin at the Museum documentary is the four members of ABBA sitting down and talking about how the group was formed, how they met each other, their marriages and divorces and the eventual breakup of the band, some highlights of their time together as a group, 
the pressures of going on tour, particularly for Anietta and Bjorn, who had a young family. And so you'll hear all of this, and there are some pretty raw recollections in some parts of this. And it's all interspersed with heaps of ABBA hits, some great music in there. So even if you are an ABBA nerd, but you haven't been to the museum and or you haven't heard the audio, you may find it very interesting as well. So when can you hear Mosin at the museum? Actually, for this one, it's a pre-recorded documentary type thing, and you have two opportunities to hear it. The first is on a Thursday afternoon at 4 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Now, bear in mind that if you are in Europe, the clocks are going back this weekend, and that will change the relationship between U.S. Eastern Time and your time zone for a week, because the clocks go back in Europe before they go back in North America. Fooling around with the forces of time is a dangerous business, I tell you, but I'm pretty sure that makes it 8 p.m. in the UK for next week only. But what I suggest you do is that you go to the Mushroom FM schedule page at mushroomfm.com schedule and just confirm when this is on in your own time zone because we detect the time zone you're coming in from and show you the schedule in your time zone. So that's mushroomfm.com schedule. So the first time, 4 p.m., on Thursday, the 3rd of November, and it will repeat at 11 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time on Saturday, the 5th of November, which, you see the genius of this, only happens to be the anniversary of the release of ABBA's Voyage album, the album many of us dreamed of, but were pretty much resigned to it never happening, and then it did. See, never give up. So, 4 p.m. Eastern on Thursday the 3rd, repeated at 11 a.m. Eastern on Saturday the 5th. And that'll be Mosin at the Museum on Mushroom FM. I hope you enjoy it. And the feedback keeps on coming in with respect to Apple issues and iOS 16. Karen McDonald starts us off. I presume it is THE Karen McDonald who opened us up so spectacularly on the Where With You concert for Ukraine. Wow, that was amazing. And Karen says, hello, Jonathan, I am writing concerning an issue with iOS 16 when using a Braille with an uppercase B display. I use the new Brailleant from Humanware. This issue started when I upgraded to iOS 16. When I am writing a text or an email and when I execute an enter command, I am thrown into a context menu and dismissing the menu does no good. I called Apple Accessibility yesterday and I was informed that this problem had been fixed in the new update. I upgraded to 16.1 and behold, the problem had been fixed. But the end of the story is that it hasn't been fixed because it started happening again. I use a 13 Pro Max phone. As a side note, my husband, Ed, yeah, so it is the Karen McDonald that confirms it. Whoa is upgrading to a 14 Pro, and he is supposed to get his phone today. So it's a big day around here for us. Oh, I hope Ed enjoys that, Karen. Any guidance or perhaps a workaround that you could provide would be much appreciated. Thanks very much, Karen. Let's put this one out to the knowledgeable Mosin at Large audience and see if anybody who has a Brilliant or a similar device can help. I've got the APH Mantis, and of course that has a QWERTY keyboard. And I'm not seeing this. It's aggravating, isn't it? When you see these things that you think are fixed and then they recur and there's no rhyme nor reason for it. 
And I'm seeing this, by the way, with Castro. On a previous episode, just before iOS 16 was released, I felt the need to warn people that, for me at least, and many others who were reporting this, Mosin at Large and other Pinecast podcasts, and some others as well, hosted on different providers, would give an error when you tried to play them with Castro and iOS 16. And I'm sad about that because it's such a good podcast app. Well, some people came back and said, we're not seeing this at all. Paul Migirelli is one person who pings me on Twitter quite a bit and says, I'm still rocking Castro with the Mosin at Large podcast. A number of others have complained. And then what I found was that for a while it was fixed. And then Sean contacted me when the iOS 16.1 release candidate came out. And he says, it's fixed for me and it's fixed for a whole lot of other people. And so I checked because I was also running iOS 16.1 and it was not fixed for me. I got a ping every time I tried to play a Pinecast podcast and it gave a 403 error. Well, then I tried the other day again after about a week and it's working for me at the moment. So it's intermittent. And I suspect that for some people, those who are having success now may only have success temporarily. I think this is going to take some sort of fix from Castro to make it permanently go away. But even with Mosin at Large playing, and I funnily enough don't listen <laughs> to Mosin at Large, what I found was that some other podcasts were still giving the 403, in particular a couple of podcasts that I listen to from the ABC in Australia. So I'm not able to go back to Castro and what concerns me is just the lack of updates that are coming from them. There hasn't been a Castro update for a wee while. So either they're planning something huge that's going to amaze us all, or perhaps it's time for us, sadly, to move on. Now, I've had several people contacting me this week in response to Dennis Long's message of last week, and I won't read them all because they essentially say the same thing. And that same thing they say is, we're having this problem too. And the problem that they are referring to pertains to when you scroll through contacts or some people are saying here your recent calls list and you can imagine this happening quite a bit you see a missed call you go in there to return the call and apparently what some people are seeing is that when you double tap on the name of that person who called you it calls someone else so this is a voiceover focus issue several people are feeling this pain and that could be really embarrassing for all sorts of reasons, that's a critical bug in my view. And it's interesting, I've not seen it. I wonder why it's happening for some people and not others. I have never seen this, but I do feel the pain of those who have, because that's a biggie. Now, Dave Carlson is here, and he says that the app switcher issue that affected those using inverted colors is fixed in 16.1. He also says there's a more efficient deletion process in text messages. Hello, Jonathan. This is Tom Reynolds checking in from Southern California. I wanted to offer a possible solution with regard to the audio issues that have been recently discussed uh, in iOS. And I think everything started to deteriorate with regard to the audio infrastructure within iOS as far back as possibly version 14.4 or thereabouts when the audio destination feature stopped working. That allowed 
us to redirect voiceover's output to an external speaker if we so desired at the time. Until recently, I wasn't able to do that on any of my devices, but with some thought in a quiet moment, I came up with what I think might be a solution that may work for uh, those that are interested in having voiceover work this way. And it has to do with how you classify audio devices in Bluetooth settings. If you select more for a given device, you have the opportunity to designate what type of device it is. So let's say that you install or pair up a set of headphones. Well, that set of headphones most likely will be classified as headphones. It may be classified as a car stereo, accidentally, but generally speaking, there are categories that describe what the device is. I have found consistently that if you select other as the device type and not the type that you think it should be, then the output of voiceover will always go to that device when you pair it up with your iPhone or iPad. That has nothing to do with the phone call issue directly, but it may come in handy for those that want voiceover to always go to the device that they're using. Now, as for the phone issue, it points out something that I've noticed over time, and that is the volume that you hear from voiceover within an application is typically different from the volume that you hear when, let's just say, you're at the home screen. Why that is, I'm not sure, but it is. And what it suggests that independently, there are settings almost, you could say, for each application. Each application has its own volume setting, it appears, and you might want to try to, within the phone app, as a call is in progress, see if you can adjust the volume. Sometime it won't let you. I, I've seen that happen. But it's a thought because um, I noticed it two or three years ago, even with something like Siri, the prompts or the responses from Siri sometimes are louder than you would like or lower than you would like. So to get them the way you want, on an older iPhone, you hold the home button down and, and then just adjust the volume with the buttons until you get the volume level the way you want. Thank you, Tom. Good to hear from you. And I fully agree with your analysis. The problems kicked in when that audio destination option on the rotor went away. So to be clear, it's there. You can select it on the rotor settings, but it doesn't appear when you rotor through the items. 
And when I reported this issue with all the Bluetooth logs, all that kind of thing, I did report this to Apple. And I said, if you can just make that rotor option come back reliably, I suspect this takes care of the issue. I also agree with your workaround if people are having this issue with Bluetooth headphones and Bluetooth devices. And in fact, I recommended exactly this to someone many episodes ago when they were having an issue, I think, with a device in their car that they co-owned with a partner, I think, and they weren't able to hear voiceover. And when I suggested changing the setting in Bluetooth, voiceover magically got loud again. Unfortunately, that solution is not available to made-for-iPhone hearing aid wearers. It may be available with devices like Phonak hearing aids that actually use the Bluetooth protocol and not the MFI protocol for hearing aids. But if you bring up Bluetooth settings and you're an MFI hearing aid wearer, you will not find the hearing aid in that list of Bluetooth devices. It's tucked away in the hearing section of accessibility, and there is no way to redefine the device. Also, I give a shout out to Rob Hutton, who suggested what you did about the volume of the phone. And it's a good trick to know. For example, if you find that Siri is faint, when Siri is talking, if you press the volume up key on your phone, you will adjust the volume just for Siri. So there are a bunch of independent volume controls. This does not resolve the issue of being quiet on a call, at least for made for iPhone hearing aid wearers. It may be a useful tip to pass on to others who are not using MFI hearing aids, but I think the key to getting the issue resolved for MFI hearing aid wearers is, as you say, getting that rotor option back. I mean, how hard can that be? (laughs) I hope that we get it during the 16.2 cycle where we rotate our little rotor, spin it around, and we find that the audio destination option is back. Greetings, Jonathan, says Marissa. I always imagine that if ever an alien lands... They will say that to me, greetings, earthling. Maybe they'll know I'm Jonathan if they listen to Mosin at large, I'm not sure. Anyway, Marissa says, I wanted to chime in, if I may. Of course you may, Marissa. She says, I too have been affected by the voiceover volume being extremely low on a call. However, I do not use made for iPhone hearing aids. Nonetheless, this issue is extremely frustrating. And while I'm glad that Apple Accessibility is aware of it, and I understand that different issues get fixed depending on their severity, this bug has been around for quite some time, and I really would like to see it resolved. It frustrates me to no end that when you have an issue with voiceover and you are able to reproduce it and send the information to the engineering department only to be told the issue was under investigation. I understand that things need to be investigated, But sometimes I wonder if Apple Accessibility is dropping the ball and saying the issue is under investigation, but not really doing anything to fix it. They get your email, they get your logs, all that, and then just put that issue on the back burner until somebody else claims to have the issue and then they may start working on it again. I had a rather interesting issue with email in iOS 16, I'm running iOS 16.03 on my current device. However, I notice that when doing a two-finger swipe down within certain email messages, VoiceOver will skip over the content of the message as if it's invisible, and it will go to the bottom of the screen where you delete, reply, forward, etc. Sometimes I would be able to do a two-finger swipe down, 
and VoiceOver would read the contents of that email perfectly fine. But maybe a few hours later, maybe I needed to reread something and I would have the issue mentioned above. I heard from an Apple advisor that the engineers are aware of it and the fix should come with a software update. I wish, as you stated, that more resources were available and that it was a bit more of a priority. I really feel as though Apple accessibility has been hanging from a cliff, shall we say, for many years now. It's not getting any better. Their commitment seems to have gone the way of the wind. Pranav has been reading the transcript and writes, 1. When I am on a call and need to do anything with voiceover, it is too soft. I have reached a stage where I actively avoid having to conference in someone when I am on the phone. My usual workaround is to take the phone away from my face and then hopefully it will switch to the phone speaker and I can hear voiceover again. I will try the suggestion of setting the voiceover volume to maximum and see what happens. This is routine on my iPhone 13 mini. Two, I am shocked by the crackling of the speaker on the iPhone SE second generation. This happened to me on the iPhone SE first generation, though it occurred after two or three years of using the phone. The same happened to an acquaintance of mine. This problem is not new. Three, is there any way of getting the startup and shutdown sound on an iPhone 13 mini? I do not want to switch to an iPhone 14 just now. Sadly, there is no mini version of the iPhone 14. No, Pranav, they didn't sell very well, so Apple has decided to move on. Also be aware that that startup sound is only in the iPhone 14 Pro and 14 Pro Max because it's embedded way in the chip. At least the startup sound is. My understanding is that with iOS 16.1, the shutdown sound has come to all iPhones and that you can turn that on. Good luck with trying the 100% trick, Pranav, because it's worked for a very happy Mary Ellen Earls, who says thank you so much for giving us the hint to turn the volume of voiceover up to 100%. I can't tell you how much this has helped, and I was able to successfully unmute myself in a Zoom meeting recently and then leave much more quickly. Also, a stellar demonstration of the Envision glasses. Thanks again for that invaluable hint. Good to hear from you, Mary Ellen, and we thank the listener who took the time to so clearly document the process. The Mosin at Large community is amazing the way we help each other out. Hello to you, Richard. Thank you for writing in. And he says, Steve Barr of Wichita said that he wanted to silence voiceover when he takes a call on his iPhone. Unless I am misunderstanding him, he should do a three-finger double tap. This is a quick and easy way to enable and disable voiceover speech. Yes, thank you, Richard. I guess that's a workaround, and it's a good one. But I'm not sure if it's the solution, is it? Because when you answer the phone, what you don't want is voiceover yammering away so that you can't hear who's calling. (laughs) And sometimes you have to fake it. (laughs) Pretend you understand who's calling and hope to work it out from the context. Not a good idea, actually. I've seen this too, where... When I am in a situation where I can actually hear voiceover, and perhaps this is a blessing of not being able to most of the time, voiceover is quite chatty now when you do a two-finger double tap to answer the call. And Vicky Cardona is writing in. She says, hi, Jonathan. Firstly, thanks so much for this podcast and for all the work you've been doing for the blindness community over the years. 
I've been listening to you off and on for several years, but this is my first public comment on this podcast. Yes, thank you, Vicky. I've got the long iMessages from you, so I'm glad that you've come out and sent in a contribution. A huge thanks also to the person who took the time to put together such a great demo of the editing feature using Braille screen input. That was Matthew Horsbull who did that, and yes, it was a great job. I did encounter one issue when I first tried it, which I would like to describe here. Initially, I found that the gestures worked with the exception of moving the cursor. So to clarify, after pressing and holding the dot with my left finger, VoiceOver would speak each element as I swiped left and right with two fingers. But when I released the finger on my left hand, the cursor had not moved. I tried this on two different phones with the same result. As I don't give up easily, I played around with it a bit and discovered that after swiping down with three fingers, when not in explore mode to toggle the status of the screen orientation, and then swiping down again with three fingers to set the screen orientation status back to my preferred mode, resolved my issue. I wanted to send you this feedback should anyone else encounter the same problem I did when I first tried this. Simply toggle the unlocking and locking of the screen orientation and then the cursor should behave exactly as described. Hopefully this helps someone. Thank you very much, Vicky. Great to hear from you. You've got so much tech knowledge going on there. Hope that you'll be a regular contributor. We can make transcripts of Mosin at Large available thanks to the generous sponsorship of Numa Solutions. Numa Solutions, among other things, are the RIM people. If you haven't used Remote Incident Manager yet, you really want to give it a try. It is a fully accessible, screen reader agnostic way to either get or provide remote assistance. These days, not a day goes by that I'm not using RIM, and one of the ways I use it is to either receive or provide technical support from family members. I'm kind of the tech support guy in our family, so I quite often get questions from family members that they want me to solve. It's not realistic to expect them to install a specific screen reader, even the demo. So before RIM came along, I found myself having to try and talk them through what they needed to do. Now I can tell them to go to getrim.app, that's G-E-T-R-I-M dot app, install a simple application on their Windows PC, and just by exchanging a code word, I can have a look at what's going on. I can either run the rater on their system, or if you're using NVDA, you don't even have to do that. It's an amazing tool, so do check it out. Rim from Numa Solutions at getrim.app. App. Hello, Jonathan, and everybody here on the Mosin at Large podcast. This is Edward Alonzo from Dallas, Texas. I just wanted to uh, talk a little bit about the last podcast on the Envision glasses. I feel like they're a really good product. I think that you did a wonderful job doing the review. I also feel like there were a lot of questions that were answered uh, before uh, that demo came out. I think that there was a lot of things that I wondered about personally. Um, one of the things I really enjoyed you doing was the physical description. I had the Horizon glasses with Ira, and I had the ones they did before that with Austria glasses. And one of the differences I noticed in the build of the glasses was the actual location of the camera. Having said that, I always felt like the camera located on the right side uh, made me feel like it was always sort of 
veering to the right with things versus the horizon kit which had the camera right above the bridge of your nose so i was wondering the feedback i got with the horizon kit was that everything was sort of a fisheye sort of thing so for instance if you were standing in front of a stage perhaps maybe taking a picture um i actually used some of the horizon kit to take pictures of my son that was young at the time and receiving awards and so what i did was i got up and walked up to the front of the stage and and i walked up to where the stage was and took the picture with the kit well you know, people thought I was crazy doing that because, you know, I'm just standing up there with this weird tech pair of glasses on and taking the picture. So I wanted to see what you guys uh, using the glasses thought of the camera being on the right hand side versus in the middle. Did you find that to be a difference in the Envision glasses versus the Horizon kit? Um, so that's something I was actually interested in. The only other question I would have is you were talking specifically about the frames and lenses. Is it not just a shell of uh, a frame? It doesn't actually have glass in it like the Horizon kit actually was a set of glasses with sort of a plasticky glass in the middle. I actually liked wearing the Austria glasses better. Well, I remember when I got the Horizon kit, and I don't know if I even have a recording of that or not anymore. But the first thing I thought of when I put them on is these are ridiculously large feeling. I think I ended up getting used to it, but I really think I like the feel of the Austria glasses better. So just my thoughts on this. I uh, hope everybody else enjoyed the demo as much as I did. Thanks so much for putting it together and keep up the great work. Thank you, Edward. It's good to hear from you. And I do appreciate the words of encouragement. I also had the Austria glasses and Horizon. I didn't have the original Google Glass that they went with. So I'm not sure how different their Google Glass was from the Google Glass Enterprise Edition that Envision is sending out. I was working for Ira when Horizon was being rolled out, and there was a bit of pushback about the way the glasses looked. If you buy the base price of the Envision glasses, you do just get the bare frame, you're right, but you can pay extra and get the Smith Optics, and my understanding is they are proper glasses. You can even put lenses in there if you want to. And I think that probably would look a bit less geeky and uh, fairly professional is my understanding. Perhaps somebody with the Smith Optics can comment on the visual appearance or any feedback that they're getting on that. As I think I did mention in the demo, yeah, the camera is to the right and that took a bit of getting used to, particularly when holding out a document. My inclination was to just hold the document right out directly in front of me. And then I just got into the habit of realizing that if you want the page to be truly centered, you've got to move a page to the right a little bit. And of course, when you are scanning text, you get excellent guidance from the glasses about where to move the document so that it gets a full view of the picture. If you're trying to take a photo with Ira, I'm not sure about the quality of that photo. With the way that the interfaces at the moment between the InVision glasses and Ira my sense is that for many applications, at least, if you want to take a picture of something, you may well be better doing that with your phone. But others are welcome to chime in and comment on that, including Ira and Envision, who, of course, will know for sure. Hi, Jonathan, writes Alexander. I just got through the great comprehensive podcast about the Envision glasses. 
It seems to be a great product. Do you think you could do a comparison with the OrCam product? This would be interesting. One of the differences seems to be that the OrCam is doing all the stuff offline, which has advantages and disadvantages. I'm not sure about the results. What seems to be a plus of the Envision product is that you can call friends to help you or use Ira as a service. This could be very interesting, so maybe you have the knowledge or find people to discuss the differences between the products and where each of them might be better. Thanks, Alexander. If anybody wants to comment on their OrCam experience, they're very welcome. And I'll reach out and tell them that I've done the Envision demo, that listeners found it helpful. And if they want to send me a demo unit, I would be pleased to do a similar demonstration of an OrCam product. What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. Or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-60-667-36. Wenway Fisher is writing in and says, Hello, Jonathan. I hope that you enjoyed your vacation. I'm excited to hear about it when I have time to catch up on the latest Mosin at Large episode. I'm having a huge problem reading by sentence in JAWS 2022. It doesn't seem to work, and I can't figure out why. Steps to reproduce. See, this is an excellent bug report here. Steps to reproduce. Press Alt Arrows to navigate by sentence in Microsoft Word and Microsoft Outlook. JAWS says... Alt up arrow or alt down arrow. Press alt arrows to navigate by sentence in Microsoft Edge. JAWS navigates to previous sentence but not to the next sentence. Read current sentence works as expected. Is anyone else having this problem? Thanks in advance for opening up this question to the community. Wenhui, yes, I'm having it. I must admit I don't often navigate by sentence because I have my say all set to navigate by sentence. And so when I do a say all, I just tap the shift key or the right and left arrow keys to navigate by sentence. I typically don't use those commands, but I verified your findings. And the good news is that in JAWS 2023, it does appear to be working as expected. So this might be one to draw to Freedom Scientific's attention and see if they can fix it for a future build of JAWS 2022. We've had some interesting discussions over the 200-odd episodes of the show on grammar and pet peeves and things like that. Here's an interesting one from David Baker. And he says, Hello, Jonathan, as accessibility is very often referred to, I would like to raise an accessibility issue that has annoyed me for some time about the accuracy of the spoken word. Who can we rely on to regulate the consistency between the written and spoken word in TV advertisements? Very often there is a displayed discrepancy in TV advertisements when the price of a product is given. Just one example is when the price is written on the screen as $1,899, but spoken as $1,899. As a visually impaired person listening to the adverts, I do assume that the product price is therefore $18.99. The spoken price of the product should be spoken as either $1,899 or $1,899. 
I rely on the accuracy of the spoken information as I am unable to see the TV screen. Is there any way of correcting this type of misrepresentation by introducing a standard of presentation? Thank you, David. I must confess you've pricked my conscience a bit because when I worked in the assistive technology industry, I think from time to time I have been guilty of this myself. I think I remember way back when introducing the Braille Node Empower and saying something like it's fifty nine ninety five. Well, I guess most people would work out that a device like the Braille Node Empower isn't going to cost $59.95, but it's a fair point that you make. And since you are writing in from New Zealand... It might be worth raising this with the Commerce Commission here. They do take an interest in ensuring that product pricing and products in general are represented fairly and without ambiguity to the consumer. And various entities have been pinged for not doing that. So if it's something you feel strongly about, you may well like to contact them and sound them out and see what they say. Alternatively, or perhaps at the same time, you could contact the entity that regulates ads in New Zealand, and that is the Advertising Standards Authority. You can lodge a complaint if you think that a product is being misrepresented. So you could contact one or both of those entities. If you do, I'd be interested to hear what response you get back. A man sits in front of a microphone. On a desk is a mixer with many rows of buttons and dials. He has an expectant expression and reads from an electronic braille device in front of the mixer. How am I doing, Joel? Is it, <laughs> is it all right? Not too bad. I'm wondering about that expectant expression. Yeah, yeah it's a bit subjective. It, bit what, subjective. What is, yeah, what is it that you see that makes you think uh, it's expectant? Sort of, sort, sort of, sort of. <laughs> perky you know a slight grin yeah, <laughs> alert there you go so similar to the way many of us feel about audio books most blind people are passionate about audio description and many become familiar with the voices of describers and have their favorites and we all have opinions about what makes good audio description joel snyder was a key figure in audio description on tv at the very beginning he's also an advocate for audio description in theaters and at museums and in all walks of of life, really. So it's a pleasure to have Joel on the podcast to talk all things audio description. Joel, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate well, that. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jonathan. It's an honor to be with Jonathan Mosin himself and his famous podcast. Mate, <laughs> tell me about how you became involved with this audio description thing, because it's a fascinating story. Well, it goes back to the beginnings of of audio description. I was I felt very honored to be a part of the the group that pioneered it all in 1981. So that gives you an idea of how old I am, mm. uh, perhaps. But no, my my background is in theater and voice work, radio, uh, for many many years, uh, running theaters, working for the National Endowment for the Arts here in the in the states. But uh, back in the 70s, I found that one outlet for using my voice was uh, being a reader at a radio reading service, which I'm sure you have in New Zealand as well and around the world, a way for uh, folks to hear newspapers being read, short books, perhaps magazine articles. And here in Washington, D.C., it's a group called the Metropolitan Washington Ear. And for about 10 years, um, beginning in the early 70s, I was uh, 
the voice of the Washington Post on Sundays and other uh, uh, periodicals and such. And I always wondered, you know, doing the Washington Post, there's loads of images, graphics, photographs in the paper, and of course, the comics. Uh, now, how do you read the comics and all those images? How do you convey that uh, over a radio feed, you know? And and we would try to uh, provide a kind of rudimentary description. We There was no such thing as audio description back in the 70s. It wasn't formalized at all, but we did our best. But uh, come around 1980, Margaret Fanstiel, a blind woman who founded the Washington Ear, and Chet Avery, a blind man who was working at the Department of Education, they happened to be on a committee at Arena Stage, a major regional theater here in the States, here in Washington, D.C. And the, the Arena people were so excited to get this committee together. They wanted to focus on accessibility, and they were quite thrilled to have installed one of the first assisted listening systems to help people who are hard of hearing. And um, what, this is a wonderful thing. Now it's it's ubiquitous. Many, many theaters have such a system. And Margaret of course, were interested, but wondered, let's see, now, if that's simply a microphone in the stage signaling the sounds are, are transmitted through an infrared system to people wearing headphones, why couldn't someone hold a microphone off stage and describe bits and pieces of action, maybe in the pauses between bits and pieces of dialogue or critical sound elements? Arena Stage, to their credit, said, you know, why don't we give it a try? This is, uh, we've got the system here. We could simply hook in another microphone and do it on another channel. And Margaret uh, took the idea back to the Washington ear. She corralled me and a few others. I had a background as an English teacher and in the arts and such. And we began to hammer out, how would we do this? What would we call it? What, what kind of fundamentals would we employ? And um, sure enough, in the summer of 1981, it premiered with a production of Major Barbara at, uh, again, Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. But uh, I would be uh, remiss to not mention a fellow named Gregory Fraser, a sighted guy in San Francisco who had a, a good close friend who's blind, and he used to describe images uh, when they'd watch movies to Together, he remembered. Um, I, I, I was a friend of Gregory's, uh, the late Gregory Fraser, and he would talk about describing high noon to his friend. And they they began to wonder what, why should a, a companion have to do this? Wouldn't it be great if there was a a recorded track that would provide those descriptions? So Gregory, in the late seventies, actually wrote a master's thesis for San Francisco State University on this idea. Of, uh, he didn't quite call it audio description. His master's thesis was an all-audio adaptation of the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman, which was a marvelous film in the 70s. So really, that Gregory should be credited for the, the first published document research on what became uh, the art and the act of audio description. Because we've all done it, right? We've gone into theaters as blind people and we've had somebody sitting next to us trying to say quietly what's going on. Sometimes they get annoyed by being distracted themselves from watching the movie because they have to describe it. And then at other times, people around us get annoyed and they're going, shh, 
because you, you're getting the description. So informal audio description has been around for a long time, but I can only imagine how incredibly uplifting it must feel to have been a pioneer in those very early days and see this little gem of an idea become a worldwide phenomenon and now standard practice. It's just amazing, really. Uh, and you're right. Description, um, in my book, The Visual Made Verbal, I, I go into the history of audio description, and it can be traced back to Greek times, ancient Greece, and, and the word for it was ekphrasis. When uh, descriptions written in uh, Greek documents of, oh, a, a shield or a, a, a armor or something like that, and it was acknowledged as a, as a kind of poetry, really. Uh, but yeah, that sort of informal description has been around probably since prehistoric times now forget ancient greece but uh, uh absolutely and now it has it has become codified we're we're working on building a certification effort recognizing the professionalism of audio describers who who really spend as much time and and effort and energy and expense even as uh, sign interpreters for people who are deaf so it's it's come a long ways you're absolutely right and from the theatre, it came to WGBH, and that was That's right. a play, a series of plays that were described initially as well. That's right. Barry Cronin and Laurie Everett. Barry is still with us, a great friend. He heard about what we were doing with theatre, and he heard about our uh, <laughs> our ill-fated attempt to do it with television. We tried to send an audio description signal over FM radio and have people tune in their television at the same time and expect it to be synced and it doesn't work because there's all kind of latency and, yeah. and difficulties with that but barry uh, was at wgbh you're right in boston and he had the idea wait a second there's a a secondary audio program feature with uh, television did analog at that time analog audio a secondary audio stream that can be paired with whatever the in is in the mainstream. Uh, it was there to facilitate Spanish translation. And Barry had the idea, if we could use that stream, then there's there's no problem with uh, latency or getting it to sync up perfectly. So that's he came to us, actually, to do the pilot. I was thrilled to actually be able to write and voice three of the first public broadcasting programs. And they, they yeah, they were the series called Mystery and then American Playhouse, I think is the series you were speaking of. We did a number of programs for them and then Barry and his crew ran with it. They, they called it Descriptive Video Service, DVS, and uh, just uh, gangbusters. They were the first to really, on an ongoing way, do description for, for television. And it grew, of course, from there. They were the first to put description on uh, VHS tapes. Remember those, Jonathan? You know You're what? <laughs> when I went to the conventions in the 1990s, I would right. come home from the States with a suitcase full of audio described video cassettes for my children in particular and we got a lot of kids friendly family movies and it's interesting I was talking to my kids the other day and they said when we see some of these movies now you know we watch them for nostalgic purposes and we watch them on Netflix or wherever they are iTunes 
and we don't have the audio description on, it feels like something's missing because we grew up with the audio described video cassettes <laughs> and there was no ability to turn them off. If you had a VCR and, and a right. video cassette with the audio description, that's what you got. And that's it's funny right. because that's how they remember experiencing the movies when they were kids. That's wonderful. And are they cited? Are yes, they they're all cited. Or? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, and what they realize is, uh, you know, obviously the, the, these are dad's versions of the movie, yeah. I guess. But, <laughs> but, but they begin to realize that audio describers, when they do it well, when it's done succinctly, when it's done imaginatively, vividly, it, it can help anyone. It, it's been shown to be uh, effective in helping people with learning disabilities, people on the autism spectrum, people learning uh, a language. Uh, but it, really for anybody, it helps build their sense of literacy, a more sophisticated sense of how to use language, how to use words. And you know, Jonathan, goodness, I, I'm an old sighted guy. I know, you know, that sighted people see, but they, they don't observe. They don't really notice. I, I was observing in a very sort of philosophical way the other day to someone, sight is often wasted on the sighted. Exactly. <laughs> very good. Helen Keller said it, you know, that that uh, sight and hearing, those blessed faculties, she calls them, uh, really aren't appreciated by those who can see and hear. They, they see things and hear things hazily without concentration and with little appreciation. But Audio description brings those things out for people and helps sighted people see. I read an awful lot of tech press, and every so often I read these kind of life hacky type articles, and they say things like, did you know that if you're busy making the dinner, you can switch the audio description on on Netflix and not have to look at the screen? Do you think many sighted people actually do that? I mean, do you know sighted people yes. who, who do it? Yeah. There are more and more. I oftentimes refer to audio description as being great for, for sighted folks who want to be in the kitchen making a sandwich while the TV's on in the living room. You don't miss a beat. And people do use it for that. Absolutely. And, you know, it's like captions. When captions first began to come out on television in the 60s, really, it's obviously for people who are deaf. But folks began to realize, wow, it's great to have captions on at the bar, you know, because you, you don't have to have the volume up or at the gym, you know, and, and curb cuts for, for people who use wheelchairs. Well, it's, it's great for someone pushing a stroller or a bicycle rider. So in the same way, audio description really is for everybody. I'm curious if we listened back to those original recordings of those plays that were described in the early days of WGBH, has the art form of audio description evolved or do you think those early descriptions would still stand up in terms of really credible examples of the craft? I think to a certain extent they would. Absolutely. I know that there's been, uh, well, my own PhD is in audio description and kind of the ins and outs and testing of, of what works and what doesn't. And there's a great deal of research uh, throughout Europe. Primarily, audio description is considered a kind of audiovisual translation akin to subtitles or uh, dubbing for instance, and there's a whole realm of study around audiovisual translation. About 15 years ago, they began to embrace audio description as one of those kinds of audiovisual translation, and much progress has been made. So yes, over 40 years, they've begun to play with what's most effective, what works, what are different ways to do the description. Uh, one example, for instance, um, 
back in the early days, there was always a focus, and still today, a focus in the writing of description on objectivity. If I see Jonathan Mosin and he's crying, I would not be a very good describer if I were to say he's sad. No, he's crying because you just won the the New Zealand lottery, isn't that right, Jonathan? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Tears of joy, if you will. So if I interpret your crying as you are sad, that's a subjective interpretation. We all do that quite naturally throughout our lives. It's a kind of a knee-jerk reaction that we have to anything we perceive. But with audio description, I believe we try to war against that a little bit. So that objectivity idea was translated in the voicing of description so that early describers were early voice talents I should say who voiced the description were were sometimes referred to as golf announcers you know now he's moving here now yes, he's moving there yes. <laughs> now, now they're now they're doing this or bowling announcers you know at very kind of monotone sort of uh, even keeled and that has changed when i teach description i i talk of consonance that the the vocal tone should be in consonance with what's happening on stage or in the film so that if it's a happy scene there might be a lilt in the voice if it's a sad scene the voice will seem more sober the tone of the voice should match the tone of the piece now it's a thin line though you're not in the play or in the movie you are of the play or movie so you don't want to go over that line and and take focus or distract people audio describers need to stay in the background the best compliment a describer can get is i got everything but i forgot you were there mm. you know you become invisible essentially As a totally blind guy who's never seen, I've become increasingly conscious of the fact that there is just so much that the eye takes in. And I suspect one of the challenges for describers is that you've got this limited amount of time so that you don't interfere with the dialogue to get stuff in. So I often find myself frustrated with audio description. I'm particularly curious about fashion, for example. I'm not really sure why, but I often find that I don't get enough information about what somebody is wearing because I guess somebody has determined it's not important enough in the wider context. How do you make a determination about what are the important things to describe in the time available? Yeah. Boy, you make a great point, Jonathan. You know, if you talk to just any blind person and and say, uh, well, what would you like to know about this image? And they quite rightly might say everything. Mm. What is in the (laughs) image, you know? Well, with description in television and film and and plays, that's not possible if you're using the pauses between bits and pieces of dialogue or critical sound elements. So I refer to it as the kind of the second fundamental of audio description training. The first is observation, taking in everything, really seeing and learning how to see. And then the second fundamental is a kind of editing, identifying the key visual elements because there is not time and because I think the best description gets to the essence of what is there. Like any artist, you carve away anything that's not quite to the point, that's not in line with the message that the filmmaker, the playwright is trying to convey. So you're you're carving it away and you ask yourself, 
what is most critical to an understanding, he points to his head, and an appreciation, his hand is on his heart, of the image, and try to focus everything there. But at the same time, we realize, even back when we were beginning all of this in the early 80s with theater, we realized that there's a lot that really is important that you're just not going to convey during the play. So for performing arts, for instance, we perfected a a technique for having pre-show notes up to a full half hour of description of scenery, costumes, maybe even reading from the printed program, material that it just wouldn't be possible to get in during the show so well. And then doing it uh, during intermission as well, perhaps for the second act. Uh, Now, with, with television and film, what has been done to a limited extent, is to create a website uh, or, or a web page that is associated with that film or television program that a, a person can consult before the show, perhaps, just like pre-show notes in a, in a live theater setting. It means an extra step, an extra bit of work for the person who's blind, but it can be valuable in giving you that background, uh, fleshing out what isn't available, uh, there, when there isn't time available during the piece to, to provide that description. Right. So I, there, there's some ways kind of around that, and, and we call it enhanced or extended description, when we can uh, in some way provide the, the information. It's almost like an alt tag on the websites when you come across a, when a screen reader comes across an image, there has to be an alt tag that describes the image or at least labels it or names it. That happens right away when the screen reader gets to an image. If there's no alt tag, of course, as you know, uh, the computer goes, whoa, cannot compute. No, no image. What, what? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> And if you're watching a movie on demand through many of the services, Apple TV Plus, Netflix, that kind of thing, it may yes. well be just some sort of extra that you could elect to watch. That's right. That's right. Exactly. It's it's akin to director's commentaries yeah. uh, with, uh, well, DVDs, which are somewhat passe now as well. Um, but but the nice thing about DVDs, you, you, you're, I loved it when you, you mentioned, you know, VHS tapes. You either had the description on there or you didn't. And it meant that Blockbuster Video or, you know, video rental stores had to have a dual inventory if they even cared enough to have tapes with description. They had to have two copies of each uh, film, at least. Uh, but DVDs, you can turn it on and off, which is, is was a, an important advance. We need more of that, by the way, on websites. Uh, there are video players that allow you to turn on and off description, but they're not used widely. You go to Facebook or YouTube, there's no way to turn on and off description like there is for captioning. And that has to change. Otherwise, people are having to post a video twice. You know, here's without description, here it is with description. Although, you know, in my humble opinion, if description is done well, you know, just post the one with open description and and sighted people will learn that they're they're getting a lot out of it or another something that has developed uh, relatively recently is we call integrated description so that a play or a, a movie a, a, a television program if the writers build in descriptive material right from the beginning 
Well, then you don't need to go through this add-on process, this post-production process. Very few films or television programs or, or even theater pieces do this. But when they do, it's really quite wonderful. I went to some productions at the old uh, New York theater company, Theater by the Blind, and thought, when I discovered them, I thought, wow, an acting troupe of, of principally blind actors, they're going to have great audio description. Well, they, they didn't have any audio description because it was so important to them. Everything they presented, they built in a narrator character, or they added lines to certain characters that helped flesh out the visual images or the action. And that way, Every single performance was accessible to somebody who's blind. And I think that's the way it ought to be. It may seem like a non sequitur, but it really isn't. I was involved in the 1990s with New Zealand's Copyright Act. I was in charge of government relations for the blindness organization. And New Zealand was the country that made the argument that modifying a printed work so that it was accessible was no different from modifying a building. It should be something that should happen as of right. And we were the first country in the world to get that concept enshrined in law, and ultimately that led to the Marrakesh Treaty, so it's something I'm very honoured to have been a part of starting. Uh, But from that process, I learned that Authors, understandably, are very protective of their intellectual property. It's their baby. And I (laughs) got lobbied long and hard by authors who came in and said to me, Jonathan, do you steal from everybody? Or is there any authors that you steal from and all this kind of stuff? (laughs) But there has been an argument over the years, hasn't there, that you are actually modifying someone's work by audio describing it, you know, in a way that they may not appreciate. Yes, that argument has been made, even with traditional audio description, where it's an add-on after the fact. It's not incorporated into the piece, but it's it's simply used by the people who desire the service. In fact, well, you're very right. In uh, in the early days of description for television, actually, in about the year 1999-2000, the FCC, our Federal Communications Commission, issued some rules saying, okay, uh, this is something that should be available. We've had captioning for decades. We should have audio description for Mm. the audience of people who are blind. And it was issued as a rule, and networks started doing it. Uh, But there was real pushback from the Motion Picture Association of America. And NFB. I mean, let's not forget that. I I was actually running ACB radio then, and so I was right right. in the thick of covering it. And it was extraordinary to me that ACB had gone to all these advocacy efforts. Blind people loved audio description. And there was NFB tagging along with the Motion Picture Association getting this overturned. And the National Association of Broadcasters, you're absolutely right. And and part of the issue that they brought up in court was, well, it is a violation of the First Amendment, the guarantee of free speech. You are requiring us to make speech, and that won't hold. That is against the First Amendment. Now, that argument never really got argued or fleshed out because the suit succeeded because of a technicality, uh, really, that the FCC was not explicitly authorized to require description. They were authorized by Congress to study it. And so the suit actually brought down the rule, and it took 10 years till 2010 before we got 
the 21st Century Communications and Video Accessibility Act, which for the first time required description at the same levels that they talked about in the year 2000, about four hours per week for the top uh, five to nine broadcasters and only in certain areas of the country, very limited. And it's not much more than that that's required now, but it's been embraced by movie theaters. It's been embraced by just about every commercial film that comes out now. Digital film has an audio description track. But even on streaming services, you know, streaming services are not required to do description at all. But it's been embraced because really so much because of the the good work, Jonathan, you did back in the day, that ACB did back in the day to help people realize that this is an accommodation that's only a fair thing to do. The difference with captioning, you know, when that law was introduced in the 60s, there was built in an increase every year that a certain percentage of television programs had to include captioning. It had to increase every year. We don't have that with the description, and we're hoping maybe we'll be able to build that in at some point. It's been embraced by some networks more than others. They certainly, the ones who are required to do it, will certainly at least do the minimum, but there are, oh goodness, how many dozens and dozens of of television broadcasters are there and you know only a few are required to do it so it, it would be wonderful to see more and more of it and uh, and have that built in to to the law and it's unfortunate you know because the united states people like you started all of this off and then because of those internal debates yeah, it reminds me of the life of Brian with the People's Front of Judea and the Judean People's Front duking it out and taking their eye off the ball. Um, because of those internal things, the rest of the world moved on, and you have countries like the UK that have far better audio description oh, yes. mandates. Oh, yes. No question. Fully, uh, Last I heard, it was fully 10% of all broadcasts must have description in the UK, and I think in practice about 20%. It may be higher now. But you're right. Maybe we developed it in the United States, but the UK took the ball and ran with it, so they have more description, even... It's a country that's, what, one-fifth, one-sixth the population of the United States, and yet they have far more description and in more formats and such. Much earlier, they, they embraced it for museums. It took us a little while to start uh, start having that catch on in museums and, and parks, visitor centers, and that sort of thing. But sure, the UK ran with it, and um, a good bit of work with the World Blind Union, uh, they, they co-published with ACB, my book in the Spanish edition of my book. And we did a survey with them of how much description is happening in their member nations. And we came up with about 70 uh, nations where there is some degree of description, mostly with regard to television, but a fair amount in museums as well as, as theater performing arts. It began with performing arts here in the States, but once it got picked up in media, that has just a broader mass appeal. And so it gets noticed uh, more on the streaming services and DVDs and et cetera. So in media. The timing of the rollout of audio description couldn't have been better, really, because I think what was also happening was that TV was evolving. I grew up in the 70s, and even then, we were still getting reruns and stuff from shows in the 60s, you know, Get That's Smart right. and Bewitched and goodness <laughs> knows what else. And, you know, there were bits of those that were quite visual, but as a blind kid lying in front of the television, I could follow most of them. 
But if you sure. get a TV show these days without audio description, it's really, really difficult because TV's moved away from the idea that it is radio with pictures. It's a completely right. different medium. That's right. Yeah, I think film especially has really embraced the notion that it's about images and you'll have sequences of a film that go on for a couple of minutes or more that are they're luxuriating in the images. You might have a soundtrack, you might have music, you might have sound effects, but otherwise you're <laughs> the person who can't see is going to be somewhat limited. You're right, uh, Gilligan's Island and Get Smart and the others were, were dialogue heavy. And so you could pretty much pick up what's what's going on. It's um, less of that is the case now in in film and television that really focuses on the images. So it's even it's, that makes audio description even more important. Sorry about that, Chief. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you've got an example of this that you can play, right? In terms of I, the difference that the description can make. I can, um, and this is an example I use oftentimes in training sessions and workshops that I do around the world. Back in the, oh golly, this has got to be in the mid-90s, there was a film, when the film was produced, it did not have audio description for its theatrical release, its release in cinemas, a marvelous film called The Color of Paradise, uh, made in Iran, actually, and Yes, let me share with you one segment of this film. And I want you and your listeners, I mean, it's all radio, right? You're going to experience this, obviously, without the picture. Yeah. But just just the soundtrack at this particular excerpt, without audio description, what can you glean by listening only? <laughs>
What did you get out of that, Jonathan? Perhaps not very much. I'm wondering what's going on. What's going on already? (laughs) What's going on? And and you're if you're in the movie theater, you know you're a blind guy in the movie theater. You're you've got your elbow going to the person next to you. Hey, what's happening? What's happening? What's happening? And they tell you, and they're going to bother everybody in the in the whole space, etc. Or you know you'd probably say after a couple of minutes, this is ridiculous. I'm I'm out of here. I'm not getting anything. You know, so. What happens, though, if we add audio description? You know, you're still blind. You can't see the images. But if we add audio description, the excerpt feels a lot shorter because you have something to hold on to. And suddenly it has meaning. Let's see by listening. Muhammad kneels and taps his hands through the thick round cover of brown curled leaves. A scrawny nestling struggles on the ground near Muhammad's hand. His palm hovers above the baby bird. He lays his hand lightly over the tiny creature. Smiling, Muhammad curls his fingers around the chick and scoops it into his hands. He stands and strokes its nearly featherless head with a fingertip. Muhammad starts as the bird nips his finger. He taps his finger on the chick's gaping beak. He tilts his head back, then drops it forward. Muhammad tips the chick into his front shirt pocket. Wrapping his legs and arms around a tree trunk, Muhammad climbs. He latches onto a tangle of thin upper branches. His legs flail for a foothold. Muhammad stretches an arm between a fork in the trunk of the tree and wedges in his head and shoulder. His shoes slip on the rough bark. He wraps his legs around the lower trunk, then uses his arms to pull himself higher. He rises into thicker foliage and holds onto tangles of smaller branches. Gaining his footing, Muhammad stands upright and cocks his head to one side. An adult bird flies from a nearby branch. Muhammad extends his open hand. He touches a branch and runs his fingers over wide green leaves. He pats his hand down the length of the branch. His fingers trace the smooth bark of the upper branches, search the network of connecting tree limbs, and discover their joints. Above his head... Muhammad's fingers find a dense mass of woven twigs, a bird's nest. Smiling, he removes the chick from his shirt pocket and drops it gently into the nest beside another fledgling. He rubs the top of the chick's head with his index finger. Muhammad wiggles his finger like a worm and taps the chick's open beak. Smiling, he slowly lowers his hand. brilliant that's the beginning of a movie the end of the movie can also be a real bear when something like that happens and one of the examples that we used to use when we were advocating here for the introduction of audio description was the end of fatal attraction so as a blind person you could sort of follow most of it but then you have no clue what happens at the end without audio description that's right if there's exactly there's no dialogue there's just some sound effects uh there's perhaps a soundtrack of of uh, instrumental track or something (laughs) by the way jonathan i should mention 
mention that in Color of Paradise, you know, we talk about the character of Muhammad and his visage, what he looks like, that was already described earlier in the film. So you don't hear much about it in that clip. You hear that he has a shirt on with a pocket and he's got shoes on, but you don't really hear much about him. And I will ask people, well, what's he like? What From the description, what can you tell about Muhammad? And they'll say, well, he's, he's a young boy. He's, uh, he's kind. He likes animals. Uh, he's agile. He can climb a tree. Well, what they don't pick up, and what, of course, is available in the audio description earlier, is that Muhammad is blind. Muhammad himself is blind, and he's able to find this little nestling that fell out of the tree, climb the tree, and put the nestling back in its nest. So it really is a nice clip and a nice way of of pointing up this whole the use of audio description and uh, and yes you're if you have the description you don't have to rely on your elbow and the person next to you uh, whispering although i remember i did workshops in um, new zealand and australia of course but i did some workshops in jakarta in indonesia and i learned about their low-tech end runabout around all of this was something called whisper theater and and literally once a month theaters would do the screening of of a current film and people were invited to come folks who are blind with companions would come and everybody was whispering throughout <laughs> the film. Everybody was whispering to each other, what's going on, what's going on. There you go. <laughs> so you, didn't dis- you didn't disturb anybody that way. Uh, so that was kind of a, a wonderful end run around all of this low-tech low kind of end run. Transcripts of Mosin at Large are brought to you by Numa Solutions, a global leader in accessible cloud technologies. On the web at numasolutions.com. That's P-N-E-U-M-A solutions.com. I want to channel my inner geek here and ask a few technical (laughs) questions you might be able to help me with. Hopefully. Are are there currently some technical standards or even guidelines around the audio description of movies and TV shows? We sometimes find that the describer is far too loud or far too quiet in the mix, or the audio of the show being described is sort of ducked in this really disruptive way, this overly dramatic way. What's up with that, and what can we do to fix it? Oh, yeah. You know, I'll tell you, some of that has to do with the expansion of description. And when you have it getting picked up by commercial services and companies who produce description and sell it to producers and broadcasters, well, competition comes into play and they're looking for ways to cut costs. And I believe that that has resulted in some of the problems that you note, uh, Jonathan. Uh, when you have software that automatically ducks the original soundtrack and brings up the description, and then when the description stops, that track is ducked and the original soundtrack comes up. When you do that with software, you can tell the difference between that and when a trained audio editor just adjusts the volume just so much so that you hear the description and then eases it back, like cross-fading, if you will, Mm. lights on a stage or whatever. Any description that I produce is done with a trained audio editor who modulates all of that by hand. And yes, indeed, according to certain standards and volume levels and such, it's absolutely critical. And by the way, audio description began with a blind woman 
Margaret Fanshteel. In other words, it's by someone who is blind initially and for people who are blind. But now people who are blind are intimately involved. Some of the best audio editors, the most sensitive audio editors to this mixing of the soundtracks are people who are blind. Some of the best best, uh, voice talents for description are people who are blind. People who are blind can be marvelous writers, and they contribute to the drafts, audio description scripts as quality control experts, if you will. And that's very welcome. It's it's not done as often as it should be, uh, but, but that's part of it too. So yeah, the technical thing is there on the voicing and not just the audio editing. I'll tell you, some are experimenting with the wider use, broader use of text-to-speech, speech synthesis. And ACB actually passed a resolution not too long ago that said, no, we're not in favor of that. We want to hear human voices making the audio description heard in films and in television, in professional dramas. We don't want to hear a computerized synthetic speech because there's just nuance, there's subtlety, And there's synergy between the voice talent and the words, the writing, that I I don't know a computer program that can match that, certainly not yet. So that's another thing there. Um, I usually can pick out when I'm hearing a track that is is, uh, synthetic speech as opposed to something that's voiced by a, a trained audio description voice talent. For sure. I heard that debate, actually, and it was an interesting debate because some people said, look, which would you rather have? Would you rather have no audio description or audio description with text-to-speech? And they said, I would rather have the audio description with text-to-speech than yeah. none at all. It's a false argument in my in my way of thinking because it – Yeah, it comes down to money. And listen, some of these streaming services uh, (laughs) are are huge companies. They are initiatives from companies that have far and away, they're some of the largest companies in the world. And to hear that, oh, well, we'll go back and do our back catalog of titles, you know, those old films and old TV shows, we'll add audio description to that. But, well, we can't afford to do it the right way, we're going to use text-to-speech for them, but for current stuff, we'll use human voicing. And I just don't understand that, because it's not so much money, and why is it that a current thing is is more important than something that happened years ago? I don't understand that argument. It's it's a false economic argument. It's a false argument that if we don't use text-to-speech, you're not going to get any description. And everybody goes, oh my goodness, well, well, we don't want that. It's a false argument. If you're going to get description, it should be the highest quality. Yeah, it's the kind of argument you hear quite a bit. Blind people should just shut up and be grateful for whatever we get. (laughs) Um, Yes, yes. You get that an awful lot. Should there be a prescribed standard somewhere that makes it an official audio description standard through some sort of standard-setting body? Absolutely. And we are on our way. I say we, the American Council of the Blind, in conjunction with a group here in the States called, the the acronym is ACVREP, the Academy for Certification of Vision, Rehabilitation, and Education Professionals. These are the folks that certify, for instance, O&M instructors, orientation and mobility uh, experts. We're working with them now. We've been working on it for 
two, three years, and I think it's going to be another year or two because it's a painstaking process developing the standards. There are plenty of guidelines and best practices out there, and we've we've started to base some of our certification requirements on those guidelines that exist already to and these would would apply at least initially for the writing of description how can you ultimately become a certified audio describer and that would ensure a level of professionalism in the writing listen it's not too many steps from that to trying to establish perhaps with the FCC perhaps with the National Association of Broadcasters the Motion Picture Association what are the technical standards yeah. that audio description must meet uh, that it, it has to be at a certain level etc cetera, etc cetera. we're going to get there by the way another technical issue I mentioned the secondary audio program feature it was created for Spanish translation well it's used for description now except on weekends oftentimes with sporting events you you won't hear description you'll hear Spanish translation you get one or the other and this is something else that I think our FCC has to look at in a digital environment it's possible to have six twelve separate audio streams and why haven't we figured out how to do that on different platforms, over the air, via cable, via satellite, etc. We should figure out how to do that so that you could get audio description, you can get Spanish translation, you can get audio description in Spanish, you can get audio description in you name it. That ought to be available, and that's something I'm looking forward to. That is interesting, because here in New Zealand, our digital platform does provide for multiple audio streams. There you so, go. Yeah. yeah. All right. Now, yeah. I've been building up to this one, Joel. I've been bu- this oh, is this, this is my big pet peeve. This is the <laughs> magnum opus of this interview, right? What, my, my big pet peeve is this. We have invested heavily, I mean heavily, in good quality equipment, home theater equipment, so that we can really enjoy our TV watching experience, with the exception of Apple TV+, Plus, which in my opinion yeah, is exemplary yeah. in every way with audio description. Their audio description is consistently fantastic in my experience anyway. But other providers of audio described content sometimes force a blind person into listening to the show in stereo when the main soundtrack is 5.1 or increasingly right. Dolby Atmos. Right. Now, I tell you, I am a major Beatles nut. I'm a huge Beatles collector. And when... Oh, you and me both. Yeah. When Get Back came out, the the Peter Jackson documentary, he's just down the road from me, by the way, and I kept meaning to knock on Sir Peter's door and say, mate, let me have a listen to what you've got. But when it came out on Disney+, Plus, I had to listen to it twice because Mm. I could listen to it with audio description only in stereo, or I could hear the amazing work he did in Dolby Atmos without audio description and to me it is just supremely see i'm just so inarticulate over this to me it is supremely (laughs) ironic that blind people who care about their audio are being treated like second-class citizens and being forced into stereo for audio description Oh, it's worse than that, Jonathan. They're forced into mono really? sometimes. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And this comes up all the time, uh, especially with uh, audiophiles and many folks who are blind 
really, as you say, appreciate and know the ins and outs of expert audio production. You know, maybe it's, as you said, Jonathan, maybe it's a little bit of, uh, you know, okay, blind people, we're giving it to you. Be satisfied yeah, with it. somebody's going to tweet at me with the hashtag first world problems because I'm blithering on about this, but I don't <laughs> care. It's, it's really outrageous. It, yeah. it, it, it really is, and, and it's not, um, I'm not a technician, I can't say for sure that it's a matter of cost. Uh, there's going to be some cost, I imagine, but w- why not make the effort to have the sound be pristine, have it be in, in Dolby Atmos, uh, have it be in 5.1 sound, mm. rather than stereo or even mono. It, it, um, Apple does it, you see. I mean, one of I our know. favorite yep. shows is For All Mankind, this alternative history series that they're doing, uh, What Would Have Happened Had Russia Landed on the Moon First. It's a wonderful oh, series. Boy. And it's all in Dolby Atmos. And, of course, there are so many cool space effects and rocket ships taking off. Yes. And we just love watching this thing in Atmos with the audio description. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, it's, up, it's on our list of things to, to work toward for sure. And I've called Netflix because we watch quite a bit of Netflix to say to them what's up with this. But of course, it's very hard to get past the first line of tech support people who are actually quite helpful. And they say, gosh, you know, we we didn't really realize this and this doesn't seem right. How does it work? I mean, why is it that Apple TV Plus consistently gets it right and other studios do not? Is it just a lack of awareness? I don't think it's a lack of awareness at this point because ACB has been very vocal and we have contacts with Netflix, with Amazon, with uh, the the various streamers uh, and with Apple indeed. And Apple has just embraced accessibility in ways that some of these other companies just simply haven't. I mean, when iPhones came out, people who were blind were, oh my goodness, this, this phone can speak to me. That kind of speech interface was something you couldn't find on other phones. You have it now, and you have television broadcasts and systems that allow speaking menus. But um, it's relatively recent. I mean, the the irony, you know, back, we're talking about DVDs, and you could turn on and off the description. It was there. Oh, isn't that wonderful? But in order to turn on the description... <laughs> You had to navigate a visual menu. That's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so what yeah. good is that? <laughs> That's changing. That has changed in, in a great extent for, in a great to a great extent with with television. We seem to have a problem with the exporting of audio described television, and I'd like to understand this too. Hmm. For example, in New Zealand, we get. American and British TV shows. And I can get these audio described from the original source using a bit of naughty geo blocking stuff, circumvention. (laughs) But when those shows are played on New Zealand TV, they're either not audio described from the source or they've been re-described by a New Zealand source, which seems to me to be a shameful waste of resource because if they didn't have to re-describe them, they could be describing more local content why is this? When t- well, TV shows are exported, why aren't we getting the described versions? Well, that's another item that's on our list. The notion that when a program is described in its first incarnation, this happens with captions and subtitles. When a program is described, that description track should travel with the program and be reused when it comes out on DVD, when it's streamed, when it's this, when it's that. Yeah. And Typically, that will happen with captions and subtitles, at least far more often than it does with the audio description track. What are the reasons for that? Boy, I don't know. You know, back in the day when 
description would come out in a film that was uh, a theatrical presentation of a film in in cinema that was a wonderful thing and you figured well uh, golly i can't wait till the dvd comes out because then i'll i'll just use it dvd comes out and doesn't have the description and i was always told we're a big film company and and there's theatrical presentation is 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 one thing and home video is something else and it's as though they don't talk to each other. Yeah. And back in those days, that's why you didn't have the transfer of the track. And nowadays, it may come down to, once again, going back to our FCC and requiring that those tracks be maintained and travel from one format to the other. The problem with regulation there is that uh, the in, in the States, the FCC only deals with broadcast television. They don't have authority over streaming or DVDs for that matter, or anything like that. So the only reason we have the explosion about 10 years ago of movie theaters coming up with description and films being released with description is because of our Americans with Disabilities Act uh, requiring public spaces to be accessible. And, and most people think, oh, that means you've got to put a ramp in. Okay, we'll put in a ramp so people who use wheelchairs can get in the space. But what if you're in the space and it's not programmatically accessible to you. You're deaf, you're blind, you know. There has to be programmatic accessibility. And that was raised. And the theaters, the movie theaters, of course, realized, well, whoa, we're going to get stuck with lawsuits. We can't describe and caption all these films. It went back to the film producers. And, and they had to abide by the ADA, basically, and provide those audio description tracks, provide those captioning tracks so people who are deaf, people who are blind had the same access as anyone else. What impact has the ADA had on audio description? Because, of course, it predates the ADA, but clearly it must have had a significant impact on its uptake. Yes, it did and continues to. And the the prime example is what I just mentioned mm. uh, with the addition of the audio track to motion pictures. So that it's, it's really relatively recently that, for instance... Every Academy Award nominee for Best Picture uh, has an audio description track. In, in the last five years, I think that's been true with the exception of maybe one or two, something like that. In fact, a couple of years ago, Parasite, the Korean film, won the Academy Award for Best Picture. And that was the one of all the nominees that did not have an audio description track. The producer just wasn't sure, how would we do this? How would we provide a secondary audio track describing things and voicing at the same time the English subtitles because it was all in Korean. Well, that's been done many, many times, uh, going back to uh, uh, Passion of the Christ, which was in Aramaic. That was produced with description, and you had one voice reading subtitles and another voice doing description. Or, or perhaps you have a, a super talented voice talent who can do both and make them distinct. But um, it can be done, and uh, it was done in the UK. And if you want to experience Parasite with description, you have to get hold of that DVD that was produced in the UK. So there it is. It's uh, lots of uh, little tricks and little problems that have to be solved. Yeah, because I think it's also true that sometimes you get described tracks on a DVD that don't make it to the streaming services where you might That's be able right. to rent or buy them. 
Exactly. It makes no sense to me, to, to advocates for description, for consumers of description. It just, uh, you know, it's the ins and outs of the uh, the broadcast industry and the, the filmmaking industry and their different components talking to each other and such. But hopefully we continue to advocate for it and hopefully we'll be heard and there'll be some change, hopefully in the near future. This all began, the audio description, with the theatre, as you mentioned, and that's really popular too. It's something that here I don't often attend, apart from maybe musicals, because I wear hearing aids and we often don't have audio-described performances where you can get a receiver that offers a mix or a feed from the stage as well as the audio describer. Is that a market that is being well catered to in the U.S.? Yes and no. And it, it just depends on the kind of equipment being used in the theater. It can be a matter of oftentimes just one earbud in one ear, or it, it's a headset that you put on and you're right, just the audio description track comes yeah. through. The idea is that you're supposed to hear peripherally the original soundtrack. I think folks are getting away from that and getting that full mix uh, through the headset. But one thing that I should mention that I think will deal with that and deal with the fact that in movie theaters, the staff in movie theaters, I don't know if it's true in New Zealand or not, in the States, the turnover among staff in movie theaters is just, oh golly, frequent. Let's put it that way. It it, it doesn't pay a lot, does it? So you can understand why turnover is high. Exactly. Exactly. And so those people have to be trained and retrained and in what are these headsets that are laying around here? Oh, this one here will will boost sound for people who are hard of hearing. Oh, this one over here, or maybe it's a switch that has to be toggled. This one over here is for audio description. And I can't tell you how many times I hear the complaint. You know, they say, Joel, I have a stack of free passes to the movie theater. Free pass, a stack of them, because every time I go... The, main, the equipment isn't maintained, it doesn't work, or they give me a headset that's giving me increased sound for the original soundtrack. Yeah. And here in the middle of the movie, they've got to go back and complain or whatever. So they get all these free passes to come back to the movies, and it may not work again or, or whatever, you know. And one solution to that, which I think is brilliant, and I think is in one way the future of audio description, at home or in the movie theater, is via your own smartphone. Mm. Now, not everybody has a smartphone, but I think they're becoming more and more ubiquitous. It's becoming like a a landline phone. You you begin to assume everybody has a, a landline phone back in the day. Well, there are probably half a dozen versions of an app that in the States, it's called Spectrum Access put out by Charter Communications, and you download the app to your smartphone like any other app, and then you use it to hear the audio description track right along with the original audio of a film. It's done by downloading to the app a track that's in the cloud. Spectrum Access, I think, has not enough, maybe four or 500 titles available. You download the audio description track to that app the app is able to listen to whatever is coming from the speakers in the movie theater to whatever is coming from your speakers in your home setup and automatically syncs the description to the sound of the original soundtrack and it really works it's an amazing and marvelous thing it allows 
you, Jonathan, for instance, you want to hear the description, uh, but your family's not interested right. in the description. Exactly. Well, okay, you don't have to turn it on for everybody else on your television at home. You can just access it through your smartphone. Uh, and it can be used for alternative translations. You know, grandma speaks only Spanish. Well, the whole family wants grandma to come with them to the movies. Well, if she downloads the Spanish dub, she can enjoy the movie right along with everybody else. And uh, it's something that I think just has to grow. It has to catch on. It depends to some extent on the movie producers cooperating with the folks running these apps and making more and more of those audio description tracks available. And once that's figured out, I think you're going to see an explosion. And, and, you know, these days of COVID and such, does everybody really want to be putting on a headset that someone else just used and uh, and an earbud somebody else used and whatever? And, oh, goodness. No, you just use your own smartphone, your own earpiece. It's just a more satisfying experience in many, many ways. And this is another so. example of where Apple is doing some innovative things, although I think yes. there is something similar on Disney+. Plus. But I discovered that, if you use SharePlay, you can actually mm-hmm. play a movie from Apple TV Plus or a TV show and share play it to your smartphone. The smartphone right. can contain the audio described version if you need it, while the version playing on your Apple TV, which is in perfect sync, does not have the audio described soundtrack for everybody else. Yep, that's another way to do it. Absolutely. Uh, that would work. And you know, another part of this too, we were talking earlier about Audio description is for everybody. Well, let me ask you this, Jonathan. In New Zealand, do you think the idea of audio films could ever play, could ever be adopted widely so that sighted people who are on a long car drive, maybe you're at the gym, you you know, you saw this great film last week, and I want to experience it again, but I can't watch a television while I'm driving my car. Ah, but if I could just play the audio track of the film with the audio description, there you go. It's an audio film, and you experience it with your imagination while you're driving, while you're at the gym. I think the time has come with the explosion of audiobooks. I think the time's come. Do you think that could be uh, viable in New Zealand? Um, I think it should be, but... You know what? It would be back to the future. We run, uh, I run a couple of internet radio stations. We have Mushroom FM and my colleague Bruce Taves runs something called Mushroom Escape, which plays old time radio and uh, drama. And we play on Mushroom Escape a show from, I don't know, I think it started in the 40s, maybe the uh, Lux Radio Theatre. Radio Theatre. And they would do this. They would actually get the actors from the big movies of the day and they would come in and do an abridged radio version of the movie. Yep, you're absolutely right. Canada did it. Audiovision Canada no longer exists. They did it years ago with audio cassettes. They actually released... uh, Oh, a dozen or so audio cassettes. Remember those? Uh, <laughs> of, you know, the soundtrack of the film with audio description, but they were all public domain films. And I think it comes down to legalities. You know, it hasn't seeped into the consciousness of the film producers in the film industry and directors and cinematographers. They don't learn about description in film school. You know, they just thought that it's a post-production thing. It comes after the film's been made. Well, If they understand it ahead of time, perhaps in the contracts that are made with the musicians, the actors, the sound effects people, it needs to be built into those contracts that one use of the film film soundtrack could be the audio description. 
could be accompanying the audio description track later. And once that happens, then I think we will have gotten past that legal hurdle, at least from what I've heard, that prevents us from adopting this audio film idea. Sighted people could download just the audio track with the description for a dollar each. I think it could be a money-making venture that would allow allow the film pro- folks to embrace audio description because it's actually making them a couple of dollars. It's not just the service that th- they need to do. Now I want to ask you about the jolly old elephant in the jolly old room. And uh, this relates to this fairly Uh-oh. new concept of visual description. And it got a lot of attention when Vice President Harris described herself recently at a meeting that some blind people were in attendance. What's interesting is that there are some blind people who absolutely deplore this practice. They say that it makes them feel uncomfortable and singled out. They feel that it's a waste of time. So there's no consensus about this practice in our community by any means. What is your view of this practice of visual description on Zoom calls at meetings? Yeah, and it's funny because you call it, and I've heard it called visual description, and we refer to it in the States as self-description. Okay. You're describing yourself. But either way, you know, I've done description and produced description or taught about description spoken on it in 60-some countries, and I've become very aware of cultural distinctions, cultural differences, obviously, between East and West, between different countries, within a country even. And certain cultures, the whole idea of talking about yourself, describing yourself, is anathema. And I think we all need to be sensitive to that. Yes, Vice President Harris did her own self-description because it's been bubbling of late that, well, sighted people can see what I look like. I better provide a description of myself for people who are tuning into this program who are blind. Well, to my way of thinking, I'm, I have mixed feelings about this uh, because the blind community and people with low vision have mixed feelings about it too. I always teach in audio description that you want to focus in on elements that are most critical, I said it earlier, to to an understanding and appreciation of the work being described. What's most critical? And just focus on those elements. Well, if you're in a meeting and you're talking about, it's a business meeting, you're talking about, uh, uh, oh, income and loss, uh, profit and loss over the last quarter, whatever, and you get in the meeting and everybody has to go around and describe themselves. I can imagine a lot of people thinking, that's not what this meeting is about. Let's get to the point. And I, that's what I hear from a number of folks who are blind. It's I, it, it doesn't really matter uh, what you look like or what you look like. I'm blind. I can deal with it. I want to get to the point of what the meeting is about. On the other hand, there are blind people who want to know a bit more about the person they're speaking to and would appreciate some degree of description. I think the key here is people who are going to do it should know how to do self-description. It's very easy when you describe anything. The author William Ivins, he wrote a book called Prints, P-R-I-N-T-S, and Visual Communication. And he talks about someone trying to describe a simple object easily gets caught up in a morass of words, in a verbal rigmarole that is completely impossible to understand. That's what happens if you're not trained in description, if you don't understand the fundamentals, and you try to describe something, even yourself, 
what are the salient things? Do you describe things that aren't visible, as in gender? Do you describe and talk about your religion? Is that part of self-description? I mean, technically, as far as people are blind, you, you can't look at somebody and say, ah, that person's Jewish, that person's Protestant, whatever. What are the elements that are going to be most helpful when you do self-description? In what order and such? I think if there's more awareness of that, and if it's limited, if it's done in a succinct way, I think self-description could be more valuable and perhaps uh, better accepted. But you're right. It is uh, it is the elephant in the room. And what, what's the elephant look like, Jonathan? Well, I thought you, you were going to do the blind man right. and the elephant thing. Yeah, which, right, right. Uh, God. Uh, <laughs> one of the things I really love about this podcast is we've got a very large audience and we have quite respectful conversations about some of these contingencies issues and we've discussed this at length and one of the most compelling arguments I've heard against it was that if you are the only blind person on a Zoom call or in a meeting and they take 10 minutes or something to go around the room and describe themselves just for you, it makes you feel really uncomfortable, particularly if you're not particularly interested in the information. On the other hand, I've got (laughs) 120 staff, I'm a CEO in my day job and I am really interested in just what people look like. And if yeah, you walk yeah. up to an individual and say, what do you look like? What are you wearing? It's kind of a bit creepy, right? You know, they're, they're, Ugh. <laughs> But, for example, I learned just by accident about two months ago that one of the people on our senior leadership team, who I've been working with for over three years, has a beard. Now, I don't need to know that they have a beard, but I was interested to learn that they sure. have a beard, sure. you know? And, and, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and sometimes mixing humor in, I think, can go a long way towards relieving any feelings of uncomfortableness. I mean, I will describe myself sometimes as, as having a salt and pepper uh, beard uh, reaching from, uh, well, I'll, I'll start by saying uh, I'm, I'm a balding middle-aged gentleman. All right. All right. All Isn't right. gentleman's uh, objective? I, 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 Yes, that's right. Yes, I'm, I'm a balding, I'm a balding man, that, uh, right? Who, who? Uh, and it's all right, all right, with a receding hairline. All right, it has receded all the way to the back of my head, yeah. and the the salt and pepper fringe of hair around my head uh, reaches forward to a, a full beard and mustache, a beard which covers a multitude of chins. Right. Um, so, you know, if you try to just play with it a little bit. That can relieve some of the discomfort or whatever, too. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a way to, to do things that will be most effective, I think. Tell me as we start to wrap, because we could talk forever sure. about this stuff. Oh, tell, yeah. Tell I me about it. the uh, ACB Audio Description Project and what that does. What, what's your involvement in that? Thank you so much, because I was going to mention it if you didn't. So there. Uh, No, the Audio Description Project, I'm honored to have founded it about 12 years ago with the American Council of the Blind. It's designed to promote audio description, to raise awareness, to to disseminate information about description. That's the thing about audio description. It's uh, ironically, yes, it's invisible. Uh, Sighted people don't see it in movies and on television. You have to ask for it. For it, you have to turn it on, something like that, and have a headset or whatever. So we need to 
increase its visibility, if you will. And that's what the Audio Description Project is all about. But we have many different initiatives now over 12 years. The most visible initiative is our website, which is https colon slash slash adp.acb.org. And I tell you, it has become the go-to place for information about audio description, not just in the States, but around the world. Now, with respect to the States, since it's an American project, you can go there and find out what's on television right now with description. What's streaming with description? Because it's not on every program, right? Mm. If you live in uh, Montana, what museums in your state have description. You live in Illinois. Well, uh, I'm in Chicago. Do theaters have description? Well, you can go to the website and find out what theaters will offer description. And hopefully they do it more than just two performances in a long run. Uh, find a way to provide it at every performance, but that's a whole other program, Jonathan. Uh, yeah. But the, the website has tons of articles about how to make description, who provides it, uh, where to get it, etc., etc. But the website is one thing twice a year. We have the Audio Description Institute, which we just finished the Summer Institute, Summer 2022. The last four have been virtual for obvious reasons, but these are training institutes, three to five days of intensive training with folks who want to be description writers, want to be description voice talents, including people who are blind. But a real, real study and training there, building ultimately, hopefully in the future towards certification. But they complete this course, they get a certificate of completion. Every year we do sessions about description with the ACB conference. But every other year we kind of do a, a mini audio description project conference within the much larger ACB conference. And we have loads of people come from all over creation to learn about description, to talk about research and description to experience description. Oh, we give awards. We give awards uh, every year, recognizing the very best in description in theater, in museums, all different performing arts, in media. Also, we acknowledge model programs around the world. We acknowledge the best in research and development. And we, we give a top award is the Barry Levine Memorial Career Achievement Award. Just acknowledging those folks out there who've been doing this all their lives and really contributed a great deal to audio description. Not to be confused with our, uh, and something else I wanted to mention, our AD Gala, which um, we started just last year. It's a way to applaud, to honor, to acknowledge the film and media industry, those folks, the big movie makers, the big broadcasters who are embracing description, we want to honor them. And it, this is a big fundraising event for the Audio Description Project. We give awards to them. It's uh, a really quite a marvelous program. This year it will be done virtually. Uh, November 29th of this year, you can tune in from anywhere in the world and hear about all of these industry providers. Of uh, They're not the ones that produce the description, but they welcome it onto their broadcasts and such. It's a big deal, and we're going to be doing that. And I want to mention quickly, too, another uh, program that's a lot of fun. We call it BADI, B-A-D-I-E, Benefits of Audio Description in Education. And we, we've done this now 10, 12 years. We ask blind kids around the United States, but we get entries from around the world, actually, blind kids who write reviews of described material. 
It might be just a half-hour educational program. It might be a feature film. They write reviews, and we read them. And uh, we have a panel of judges who divide uh, the entries into age range. And we give awards to the kids for the best reviews that we get. Everybody gets a certificate. We even make awards to the teachers of these kids who have uh, helped them shape their reviews and that sort of thing. And by the way, uh, there's a a wonderful woman, Polly Goodwin, in Australia who has... um, adopted this idea and is mounting a Australasian version of this Beatty program and welcoming entries from New Zealand and Australia and around the region. I'll send you the information on yeah. that, Jonathan, and maybe you can post that on your website. So, because uh, it, it's great. We have a little spinoff in uh, Australia of the Beatty program. I was a huge fan of Sesame Street when I was a child, and I was really intrigued to read in your excellent book that some of the vintage Sesame Street material has been described. It would be interesting to go back and try and get that. But then when I had kids, I thought, wow, one of the great benefits of having kids is that I've got a legitimate reason to get back into Sesame Street. And now my (laughs) grandchild number one is on the way. So I've got got another excuse to get back into Sesame Street. But I really must try and find that vintage material audio described because uh, that that would be really great. uh, You know, for six years, I led a program that uh, did the description for the first time for Sesame Street. So I'll see if I can find some material to send to you. Jonathan, you make me remember a letter that I received when I was producing description for Sesame Street. Uh, This is back in the mid-2000s. Got a letter from a blind adult. Her name was Carla Hudson. She's still around, actually. Uh, I've talked to her recently. She sent me a letter because she said, just just like that Jonathan Mosin fella, (laughs) I loved I love description as a child, as a blind child, listening to the sounds and the silly music, and and it was just fun, you know? Now, well, back in the early 2000s, she had a sighted child, and she loved the fact that she could get description with Sesame Street because she could follow along with her sighted child, all the antics of Bird and Ernie and Elmo and such. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a wonderful thing on lots of different levels. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. <laughs> and in terms of advocating for audio description, some of the things that we talked about, is the ACB Audio Description Project the best way to get involved and try and uh, influence some good outcomes there? I think so. I think uh, we have, oh golly, we have a steering committee that really runs the project. Uh, We have a coordinator for the project who's on the staff at ACB. We have, um, I think, nine subcommittees my title now is founder and senior consultant, sort of uh, emeritus, uh, if you will, but I'm still very involved. I, I'm at all the meetings and uh, participate actively in, in uh, the Institute, of course, uh, as well as uh, some of the awards programs and such. But yeah, I want to be sure you, you have my email address and people can send me a note about getting involved with the Audio Description Project. They can write to me very simply at Snyder. J-S-N-Y-D-E-R at acb.org or my own company is Audio Description Associates and my email address there is jsnyder at audiodescribe.com. The ADP has reached out far beyond the shores of the United States, so we welcome the involvement of, of folks around the world. It's wonderful. You know, it's something you can feel very proud of, that you are part of planting these seeds that 
have made such a difference, had such a big impact on the lives of blind people around the world. And it's been a wonderful thing to catch up with you and talk about oh, some of these you, issues. thank you, Jonathan. So. Thank you so much, too. I, I just want to say thank you for the wonderful work you did with the um, broadcast in support of uh, Ukraine. I thought that was such a marvelous thank you. idea. You were singing on there. I didn't realize you had that talent. I was a part of it. That's right. Uh, I had the opportunity to do some workshops on description in Ukraine in uh, uh, late 2019. And so I feel a, a bit of a personal connection to the, the land there and uh, wanted to be a part of your program. And thank you so much for doing that. Uh, it was an absolute honor to be a part of that. And thanks for coming on the show. The time has flown by. It's a pleasure to have a chat with you. <laughs> thanks so much, Jonathan. I love to hear from you. So if you have any comments you want to contribute to the show, drop me an email written down or with an audio attachment to Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. If you'd rather call in, use the listener line number in the United States, 864-606-6736. Who's in it for?